0: Sound facilities have now moved into people's homes. The technology that it took and the cost to put a really A-level sound mixing post-production facility together, you could put a decent system in your house, acoustically treated and deliver product that would play on a television, a theater that you never really could do before. What that's allowed, it's allowed a lot more flexibility, but it's also proven a point that uh, what kind of footprint do you really need to deliver that kind of high quality product.
1: Welcome to the Sound and Marketing Podcast. I'm really excited to introduce my old friend, Steve Williams. He was actually, I believe, at my wedding, and my husband's known him even longer. Steve is the former VP of Post-Production Services at Universal, so he's got some stories for us. Today, I just kind of wanted to talk about cinema, sound in cinema, and movies and TV, and... Everyone can understand sound and music in that, and I'm hoping that uh, those that are listening can draw from his experience and uh, glean it into their marketing strategies and campaigns and really think about sound in marketing as just as important as sound in film. So welcome to the show, Steve.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. I really feel honored that you asked me to, to participate today.
1: Why don't we start with, kind of tell a little bit about yourself. Obviously, you're not just Universal because you've done many things since then, but um, let's start with Universal and just kind of talk about how sound and marketing worked through your position.
0: I just want to give you a little bit of a background in terms of getting to that point, because I think one of the things that's important, um, Gina, is because sound is such a complicated craft, right? And, um, and I always tell people that it encompasses all the range of creativity, raises the level of your end product. Sound is really very important. And I think it's one of the most creative things that someone can get into in terms of different skill sets can be accommodated in that. In my particular case, um, I, you know, I was in college and, and, uh, (laughs) uh, and then decided to leave college and, and. And uh, uh, get into a situation to where um, I didn't really feel that my pathway in college was really, you know, speaking to me and stuff. And so um, through a couple of various things, I ended up going and leaving a university and going to a junior college to where they had a broadcasting department and a radio station. They also had a film department. I met some people there and we started a, a little sort of community and started making short films. I just was fascinated by it. I lived in the Bay Area, San Francisco is where I grew up. So Francis Coppola was there, of course. And, you know, they were just really Walter Murch, and they were just really getting independent film industry uh, off the ground there. But music was the biggest thing, right? And that's what really drew me into that scenario. I was fortunate to work for CBS Radio for three years as a radio engineer and, and uh, learned to edit documentary sound there. One day I was at, the, at work, and my brother, who was a musician, was working at a recording studio in Berkeley, California, and called me up and said that, uh, uh, was I interested in having a position as an assistant recording engineer? And I said, oh, why, why is that? Technically, I was really into sound and that sort of thing. And he said, well, they just uh, let go of a, an assistant engineer, and they need somebody over here right away. I finagled my way out of work that day, <laughs> that afternoon, and, and went over to the studio and got hired. And I quit the next day and went to work at Fantasy Records in Berkeley, California and that was kind of the biggest thing to happen with me and it started me on my journey of sound so leapfrog many years later on, um, I had spent time as an independent uh, I moved to Los Angeles and with my wife and young my our first daughter and um, got into the independent sound world, which, you know, so many of the people in the sound business are freelancers. They're trying to figure out a pathway of how you can get connected um, and make a living on that sometimes is one of the most difficult things to, to overcome. Fortunately, I did make some, some connections and someone who I had worked with previously became the head of um, the sound department at Universal and I ended up being able to get hired there. That started my time at Universal, and I was there for 14 years. The sound department was huge. The the major studios all had big sound departments. Uh, There was always an ebb and flow in the industry where it would ebb to independent sound houses, and then it would ebb back to in-house studio sound departments. And this kept on going back and forth. But because as an independent, when technology changed, the studios could do it better to upgrade because they had more resources. But when sound was still rooted in um, really rudimentary sound tools, which was moviolas, you know, 35 millimeter film reels, uh, cutters and all that sort of stuff, it was very easy for an independent to really exist because it was your skill and your time. But when technology started to change and computers became a part of the tool set Um, And the mixing facilities, you needed to expand because you went from, you know, film mono, three track, three track into multi-channel sound. You needed really good technical departments and engineering teams to really put those things together. So kind of swayed back to the studios and they invested and started to build bigger departments. The the next change that really came into that was um, home video right? Delivering products that people could watch in their home. Uh, You remember videotape and people would have, uh, go rent videotapes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, everybody remembers the blockbusters and and the, the, um, what's the other one? The the blockbuster and uh, all the... yeah, right. That was a big one. I used to go there all the time.
1: video, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, you did. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, we would go there and 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 because they had a large collection of 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 old and archive tapes and stuff like that. So we would always get those for when we needed them in old shows. But one of the things was is that uh, and this is, it's it's kind of interesting to understand that trend, because what happened was it was a side business even for the studios, delivering product for the home. TVs weren't sophisticated. Um, you know, the technology hadn't really um, gotten inside to people's home to where they embraced it, right? They could afford it. Uh, the movie experience was still the number one thing, delivering for the theater, right? And that's what really the studios were focused on. And then on the side, they had these little departments called home video, which were ancillary, where they because of the windows of product to get into the theater, um, they would be preparing product that would be come to the marketplace 90 days or more, depending on what the deal was for those things, to get into the home. Little did we know that the pendulum would be changing. Mm-hmm. There was more emphasis on what was happening in the home, right, as the technology got better and people could enjoy a better listening experience in their homes to all of a sudden home video just blew up and became the number one part of it because uh, DVD cells, remember that this is one of the other things, DVD cells. And that, uh, what was it? There was, uh, the, the, the was, I can't remember. Well, well, no, what happened was is that the studios fought over format mm. On DVDs, right? There was Sony, and there was another one, and they invested a lot of money in their the different uh, formats. And once it became clear what the final format was going to really be, it got rid of videotape, right? Now we had hard DVDs, um, and then that became a whole nother thing. The skill set to deliver to home video became a lot higher, and they expanded their part their departments, right, to deliver home video. One of the things, you know, that that became really interesting about it was that even though the cachet was still in the film side of the business, but the home video was getting more money because of licensing and they were starting to grow. So what ended up happening is that the executives that were running the home video departments all of a sudden became a lot more important because that was a revenue stream that just was very, very big for the studios to the point where you saw executives when executives changed positions that studios and corporations were leaning on the heads of home video departments to run the studios. Typically the heads of studios would come from marketing departments because getting to the consumer and understanding how to put the product out in the marketplace was really the biggest thing. But um, home video became the really biggest thing. And of course, we leapfrog into March of <laughs> 2020. No one will forget. And that. what happens? <laughs> and that's exactly right. And, uh, but that, this was all set up for the to explode to the point where people consuming at such an incredible rate of product in their home, nobody could have even thought about that. And to not have the theaters as an option to go to became a very big thing, even from an advertiser standpoint the products that the advertisers really relied on weren't really that important anymore. Right. Because things just really shut down. So everybody's had to pivot at the end of the day, but I think the studios are driven by marketing. They're driven by getting people in seats. And that was tough to do because there were no seats to really get them into. Right. Right. So um, I, I read an article just recently about Fandango who was the, one of the number one ticket sellers to get people into the theaters they had zero revenue so they had to pivot so what they pivoted to was now is streaming because now product is being sold on streaming formats mm-hmm. right and like uh on
1: disney plus
0: very much so absolutely that one is, uh,
1: thirty dollars to to stream that exclusively
0: That's exactly. And so and so the marketing campaigns had they were different because now they were getting subscribers Mm -hmm. as opposed to getting people into seats in theaters, you know, which is really interesting. Uh, So I know that was a a long (laughs) ramble about about where we're going to go. But um, one of the things I did want to talk about then was as far as the studio and the sound departments at the studio. We had, a, we had um, an editorial department that really prepped material, sound editorial. Um, they prepped for television shows. They prepped for feature films, right? Uh, as we got more into um, specialization in the department, um, we had more of our feature film clients editorial coming from outside facilities to work at our facility with our mixers. And because those relationships between sound editors, mixers, directors, producers were the things that really drove those things, right? Whereas uh, television, uh, a lot of it came in house, right? There were uh, a lot of third party clients that came out of it, but our TV department was very big uh, because the studio was also a producer of content besides. also leveraging their facility for outside clients. So um, at the time, I think I was there, we were doing almost 40 shows a year of of television. And we had eight mixing stages just for television, three for feature films. Um, And then there was a small um, mixing, mixing facilities for the marketing department. The marketing department it was so unique because, first of all, the marketing departments within studios are very secretive. They're very insular. There's a lot of strategy that goes on in terms of where they're going to be placing product in the marketplace. Of course, this has all been turned upside down right now, right? But uh, the tracking and in, in finding opportune times and the appropriate times to put something into the marketplace was the big deal. You know, was it going to be this uh, like now, right? It would have we would have had a lot more horror movies in the theaters, right? Because of the Halloween and coming around Thanksgiving, but but it also was a lead up to our Academy Award time. So a lot of new movies and blockbuster movies were would be coming out right now because of the Academy time to get attention. That's exactly right. That's not happening now, right? So that's really a really whole big thing, but um, the marketing department had its own infrastructure and was insulated from the regular sound department. They had a a picture department that did its own uh, coloring and prepping and delivery of, of elements from that because uh, marketing departments and feature films do versions, so many versions, so many different campaigns of the same thing. And the turnaround is fairly quickly. So um, not wanting to have to send that outside to a third party um, company was really important. So they developed um, their in-house mixers and colorist and uh, delivery for themselves. And I think each of the studios probably had the same footprint. Marketing was completely different than say a television prep or a feature film prep uh, because the fast turnaround and, you know, getting product out into the different, you know, television feature films, trailers, radio, all those sort of things. There were so many different ways to deliver your content as they ramped up um, a release of a film. It was quite amazing that how could you even keep track of it, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> which, is, which is pretty amazing. And a lot of times those uh, had small crews. You usually had a mixer and you had an editor, right, that would deliver that. And um, it was very specific in terms of um, how you took advantage of delivering a product in the marketing side of it because um, sound levels were really important. Because they usually your product fit in between uh, other content that was on either a radio or a television show, and you didn 't want your con- you wanted it to stand up you didn 't want it to sound lower you didn 't want anybody to reach for volume and all, so people manage d b s and and uh, you know sound levels just really uh, you know, uh, excruciating. Uh, but there was a theory, you know, to be able to say, you know, how you started something out, how it peaked out, what some levels, dialogue levels that you uh, maintain were very, very important. And so there was always a constant monitoring of what it sounded where and what it sounded um, in, on other places and stuff.
1: So here's a question. Um, because it sounds like the studios kind of have their own infrastructure and because they wanted to get their their content out in the marketing world quickly. So they've got their own sound department and everything with COVID the way it is. And as you and I are in the LA area and we're very familiar with film production has so many new standards to it. So for live shooting with cast and crew, like that can get pretty extensive and even like a skeleton crew for a film is large Um, for the studios and for the streaming services and for all of entertainment that's going forward, sound i feel is an opportunity that we could get more into animation and um things that don't require you know like what was it i can't remember what my husband was saying but i think it was like a a cut down crew for a small production could be like 45 people um Mm -hmm. what is the opportunity that you see with these establishments that are already in place you've got the sound the sound crews there um what about animation? What would be the next step with COVID and, you know, post-COVID?
0: Well, this is this is a good question, and and I, it's another one of those things where I think the trend and how the workflows happened uh, started probably five or six years ago. And a lot of times an event like this pushes something over the edge and I don't think it'll ever go back. And in this particular case, I think for sound um, in particular was that sound facilities have now moved into people's homes. The technology that it took and the cost to put a really A-level sound mixing post-production facility together has come within the reach um, of the I mean, the high professional, someone obviously that is doing very well, but even on the smaller scale, you could put a decent system in your house, acoustically treated, and deliver product that would play on a television, a theater that you never really could do before. Nobody would ever think about that. In fact, most uh, marketing departments, the security level that existed at studios really wouldn't allow people to take work home. Right, Sound editors typically uh, always had the ability to do something at home, but there was, uh, um, when the piracy uh, issue got out of hand, studios really implemented and instituted a lot of uh, controls to make sure that things would not get pirated, right? and rightfully so. Uh, so there was a restriction that a lot of studios really wanted their employees to work in the studio right? Now, there was a thriving independent um, uh, industry that was already going on with sound editors and picture editors and those sort of things um, outside of the studio, but usually they had to get the sign-offs of the the post-production departments that their facilities were approved to do that kind of work. So what, what happened was now all of a sudden you have this wave I'm telling you, unbelievable. There are some incredible working facilities in people's homes Mm -hmm. right now to be able to deliver this product. What that's allowed, it's allowed a lot more flexibility, but it's also proven a point that uh, what kind of footprint do you really need? to deliver that kind of high quality product because um, usually in the marketing departments, there's always a lot of other eyes on uh, products, not just in marketing, but in feature films and television, you have a lot of remote interaction that's going on right now, right? Because now you have uh, they used to you used to just have ISD in the lines where you would have to hook up and they were quite expensive and you could only go one way, you know, a small uh, file both ways. Uh, now you have the ability uh, because of these new services that are on that you can do um, 5.1, 7.1 Atmos reviews remotely. And Atmos being the multi-channel um, sound formats and they're delivering... Uh, you know, a lot of content in that, but people can't be in the same place. I I think it's exciting. I think it's absolutely amazing that I could be in my home without any latency that we could have uh, a review in real time of something and then I can deliver it. And we never saw each other except on, <laughs> on the screen or, or even just, you know, they listen to the content and stuff like that. So I think it's created some efficiency also, but I think it's allowed uh, maybe a little bit more time for people to prep product. Also, it's spread it out right now. You have it horizontal where your, your crew and, and uh, people don't have to be in this one facility in this one place. And I think that, uh, the sound supervisors and those who are responsible for managing the sound content on these things um, have a little bit more difficult job too, to manage it, right? Because you have to get the source material in so many people's hands. So that makes it um, tough. You have to have really good assistant editors uh, to keep track of things and stuff. So,
1: well, we know a lot of good assistant editors. So
0: yes. yes.
1: <laughs> um stemming off of that, I'm going off of my talking points because I think this is more interesting. Um, We both know the power of sound, the importance of sound. And I read something because of COVID, um, depression and mental issues of sorts are up like 700%. Yes,
0: they are. Yeah, I know.
1: I mean, everyone is touched by this in one way or another. Like you don't have to be super stressed, but there's a difference in your life there's something raw and truthful in just the voice. And when you utilize voice first or sound first, there's something more emotionally engaging in that. And I wonder if now everything is going to the home and it's probably going to stay there for a while. Like personally, I'm not going to a theater for a long time. Um, But now that our cinema experience is in the home, what can we do? How can we be more sensitive through the sound that we put into movies and TV and podcasts and streaming advertising? How can we be more sensitive? How can we utilize that skill (laughs) set?
0: Well, it's interesting because I I think this has always really been a discussion because um, making the end product a pleasurable experience for the consumer is really part of the, part of the thing. Right. And I, and I, and sound, um, depending on the, the genre that you're working in, obviously is tells the story too. Right. But there is that bio physical side of it, which is we hear, we have ears, uh, they have limits. It's like playing rock guitar on a concert, standing next to three Marshall amplifiers. Eventually, you will lose your hearing, right? And I think in this particular case too that that um, with the sophistication of playback equipment in people's homes, delivering product into the home that is comfortable and sensible to listen to, I think is very important. And and I and I know there's a huge concern and a lot of consciousness that goes into it from the mixers and others that. That are delivering for that format. There's always a thread, you know, you go on Reddit or you go to whatever occasionally when a film gets released, and uh, there's, and, and everybody always likes to be respectful about people's work, but there's always, you know, when something sort of goes outside of that edge and becomes a task to say, I, if I'm going to sit in this room, I do not want to be assaulted. Television has gotten like film, Uh, the dynamic range available for television is amazing. And and the product, um, of course, it's the imaginations, the sci-fi kind of projects, those projects that have visuals that just require uh, new sounds and new things. Um, Look at Game of Thrones as one example. Who would have imagined how sound could work with those images to create believability for that. But um, I mean, the dragons and the, the battles and all those sort of things, they still have to come into the home to where you can sit in your home with your family and enjoy it.
1: Tune in for the next episode where we will continue our conversation with Steve Williams. Former VP of Post Production Services at Universal. I am very excited to announce my upcoming course, Sounds, Power, and Influence in Marketing, launching February 2021. Pre order is available now. We'll be discussing what sound is and where it came from, the origins of advertising, advertising today and predictions for the future, sound's role in decision making and buying power, and how our brains process sounds to create choice and reaction. Get early bird pricing at soundinmarketing.com. Prices go up February 1st, so don't delay. Head on over today. For inquiries on sonic branding development or consultations, you can find me at Dreamer Productions. That's D-R-E-A-M-R productions.com, LinkedIn, and Facebook. You can also email me at Gina, J-E-A-N-N-A, at dreamerproductions.com. All links will be provided in the show notes. For more of the Sound and Marketing Podcast, don't forget to follow, subscribe, and share. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and Stitcher. This episode was produced by Dreamer Productions and hosted, written, and edited by me, Gina Isham. Let's make this world of sound more intriguing, more unique, and more and more on brand.